Hey everyone, and welcome to the brand new Digital Foundry Direct Weekly. It's Digital Foundry. It is weekly. <laughs> We're talking about the latest tech and gaming news. Joining me first of all, after a significant absence, it's Tom Morgan. Hello, Tom. I am. I'm back with, uh, well, the big mic's back, uh, but no bed knobs. So sorry about that. And uh, of course, from Berlin, Alex Battaglia. Hey there, Rich. Hello, Tom. You're the rarest Pokemon at Digital Foundry next to Will Judd, and we're going to catch you. <laughs> That's quite silly stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, but let's begin. Here's our first news topic of the week. After an extended absence, we finally got to see some more of the Halo Infinite campaign trailer. Now, we're going to have some content uh, distinct and bespoke for this particular uh, reveal. Um, so, well, let's keep things brief. But Tom, what do you reckon? I mean, we haven't seen enough of it or any, indeed anything of it uh, up till this point. And I thought it, it was it felt like an extension of the multiplayer in terms of the technical design and the maps. Uh, I don't know if there's a, much of a, an overlap in terms of what they're showing between them, but it did feel like, oh, here's a sort of a campaign level based around this multiplayer map that we've got going in uh, the you know, the multiplayer game. I don't know, did you notice anything kind of exceptional over and above what we saw kind of in terms of the tech, Alex? Because I, I felt like it, it's, an, it's an improvement, but it's not kind of a, a revolution. Well, I mean, I'm going to be talking a bit more about this with Epos Fox Adam in a dedicated video. Uh, but in general, um, I was just reading a lot of the stuff online about this, about people's reactions, reading uh, forum posts and whatnot. And a lot of people do think it looks better. And uh, quite honestly, I've watched it multiple times. I looked for all of the issues that I pointed out in my video uh, that, you know, brought up its own controversy back when it came out. And I'm actually seeing very little um, changes in the direction that I thought would make the game uh, look decidedly better. Um, and, you know, I've seen people putting uh, the very, you know, the cinematic moments side by side and whatnot uh, from Ben. And I did not actually see great technical uh, large differences uh, between them in a positive direction. I actually saw some things that I thought looked uh, worse than the initial uh, campaign trailer showing of the cinematic, for example. And I'm going back in time now looking at the initial Slipgate engine video, showing off all those varied and interesting biomes. And for some reason, we are still seeing this, this, um, this piney Northwest uh, of the United States or Canada, uh, biome that we've seen already now so many times before. Well, what about all like the diversity of like a typical Halo campaign? Where where's the interesting looking deserts or the you know like the um, you know like massive tree forest or something that we've also seen in Halo Four? Why are we not seeing any of these other more interesting visual things? We keep seeing this like the same thing over and over again. We just saw it and I just, I'm just not interested in what this area looks like. And I actually don't think it looks very good. Um, 
And I know that's probably disappointing to some of the audience that are thinking that I would be uh, happy to talk about some great progress that I saw in the Halo campaign footage here. But beyond the gameplay beats, which has nothing to do with the visual quality, uh, I think the gameplay looks interesting, even though I'm a bit worried about level design. Um, I, I don't think they actually have shown or proven anything regarding the uh, technical advancements the campaign has made since we last saw it. Multiplayer looks good, I think, but I'm starting to think that the way the lighting technology and asset creation is done and uh, just general rendering is done is actually quite different in the multiplayer versus it is in the campaign. I don't know, Rich, what do you think? <laughs> um, I'm not sure it's evocative of the multiplayer maps. I mean, the big difference is essentially open world, which means dynamic time of day, which means uh, we're seeing something quite different to the baked lighting that we saw in those in those maps, which are also, um, I thought the levels there were very, very distinct. And as you say, Alex, we've not really seen a huge amount from this uh, campaign. And I do think, as you say, that initial um, engine demo that was like, several E3s ago now. Um, there's still a lot of promise, which we've not yet seen. Um, I did think that uh, possibly the time of day and the materials handling had been improved. It certainly looked a lot more, didn't look as flat. I think one of the main issues with your original critique was the, um, uh, the time of day basically ensured that everything was in shadow, which is a bit of a problem for this kind of um, engine technology. Uh, I thought that was improved. Um, the other thing which I think is worth bearing in mind is that uh, it looks to me like those really, really bad level of detail transitions that we saw in the first um, trailer, they seem to be gone or at least mitigated significantly. So I think there has been progress there. Um, I think what is the big outstanding issue for me is that the concept of an open world halo hasn't been sold or validated in any way. I don't know why I'm should I should be excited about an open world Halo. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, we've we've seen so many games transition to open world, open world light, uh, and the formulas that exist to make that interesting. You can take the Death Stranding approach, which is very different. And John and I have talked about before how we find that game very very interesting because it makes the open world traversal element uh, as part of the gameplay. Or you have your Far Cry Ubisoft approach, where you have pockets of hot uh, kind of interesting things to do, but in between is rather boring. Uh, and, you know, I do think it clashes a bit with the, like the previous Halo's design ethos, where you have a, a level like in the Halo 1, the Silent Cartographer, which is a large open wide space, but it is carefully designed, uh, very carefully designed, but you have multiple paths to go through it. Um, here, if if that is actually kind of not there anymore and the actual design takes place primarily in single locations uh, that are designed you know, very separately from one another, it takes away the whole <laughs> like interesting nature of approaching a, a level and playing through it because it's it's just very Far Cry-like. And I, I don't know, I, I'm not sold on it either, Rich. Um, I'm a little worried actually for this campaign at the moment, yeah. Uh, in what way? Like, uh, well, for for example, like in, in the initial Halo, you would have a, 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 a maybe a level where you'd enter a room and there'd be a number of different like creatures in it and you would have to kind of 
pace your way through it using the tactical options available that were designed for that room. For example, there would be a shotgun in the corner of the room or something like that, or an invisibility that you could pick up, or an overshield, something like that. But here, uh, it has this Ubisoft-style approach where you mix and match your weapons and stuff before you engage in the combat itself, knowing what it is. Like, you, you buy yourself a Warthog from some sort of station, or you increase your uh, meta ability to, uh, I don't know, uh, pick up and throw things, or use your... Um, uh, what do they call it? Uh, I don't know. It's like some sort of thing that you fly around the level with. I forget the word. Grappling hook. You know, they have these metal elements that allow you to engage in combat in a different way. But that's not exactly what a Halo game has always been. Uh, it's actually been like pure level design and encounter design based upon the things they give you in that encounter design. Like, like the things they scatter around the world for you to pick up there. And I don't actually want Halo to become the other thing that it's kind of looking like it's become here. Um, I do like dedicated, you know, very purely designed uh, areas instead of ones that, you know, just say, yes, enter it ha as you will. I, you know, I don't know. It just doesn't feel like Halo based upon what they showed me other than the fact that it looked very dynamic and, you know, it had some really cool stuff going on in terms of like jumping up in the air and shooting rockets. Um, but it didn't look like Halo to me. Maybe it uses a kind of uh, a Gears of War style, you know, there's a, a parts of the campaign which funnel you down to for those scripted moments. And then it opens out, and then it opens out for a dust bowl, if you like. Oh, Gears of War did like a very small scale version of that, but you know what I mean. Uh, it'll, it probably will, it will, they just wanted to show something, the new thing, which was the open sandbox uh, sort of areas, but maybe that was why it's top of the billing for what to put in a you know, a campaign demo where in fact it's not so remarkable in the context of you know games these days because it's we're in an era of um you know assassin's creeds uh, where you know where this is not like outside the ordinary uh, but for halo it is i think kind of it is unique so that is why i think they're pushing it as the key selling point it isn't as remarkable as i wish it was and i totally agree alex i wish i would be wowed halo has to be your flagship you know wow moment that has to sell consoles it is xbox uh in much the same way forza uh, you know and uh, gears used to be but it is it's got to be this spectacular moment and I, I'm sure, I mean, the, the multiplayer beta is, you know, great fun. It's, uh, you know, it's one of the best Halo experiences I've had in a long time. But I am looking to the campaign for a sense of, you know, what is this game about now? Like, what what is the story? What do you have to bring? What do, what have we been waiting for in this campaign trailer? I didn't see it yet, but, I you know, hopefully they'll, you know, we'll finally get it. We'll, we'll get a good sense of what the story is and... Uh, the cinematic flourishes as well, which we kind of uh, were kept away from us in this one. Um, yeah, I think there are numerous issues. I think we should probably talk about those in the uh, discrete video that's that's uh, distinctly about this, where we've actually got uh, you and Adam who've delved more deeply into uh, into into this showing and, and what it means. But yeah, I mean, that's my takeaway that, you know, is Halo a good match for open world? In theory, it should be. Um, but I don't think we've seen a kind of killer application of that particular genre with what we've seen so far. So jury's still out. 
I'm kind of uh, fascinated to see how it's all going to play out, though. Uh, but let's move on to the next topic. I don't really know as a sort of tech outfit what we've got to uh, <laughs> to offer on this, but uh, uh, interestingly, to engage uh, increase engagement in their latest open world game, um, Ubisoft is essentially um, emailing people. Uh, Kotaku calls it pestering. <laughs> it's yeah, saying that Far Cry Six is. Far Cry 6 is pestering players for not playing enough. And I'm looking at the email that was sent here that's in this Kotaku article. It says, surely you could do better than this. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And then the stats actually sound as though, you know, they've had enough of Far Cry 6, if anything. Uh, time played, hours, th- 33 hours, 2,186 kills, 30 weapons collected. Uh, 565, 565 stealth kills. Sure, surely you can do better than this. Um, two questions for you, Alex. First of all, can you do better than this? <laughs> uh, because surely you can do better than surely. this. Surely. And secondly, um, what do you get of this? You know, what do you make of this concept of a game emailing you to basically taunt you for not playing it enough? I think it points towards a sickness of uh, a game success being measured in its engagement hours and stats and all these other things when it should actually, you know, maybe you play three hours of Far Cry and you felt actually satisfied and you didn't want to play anymore. You know what I mean? Like, you don't always have to beat a game um, to have enjoyed your time with it. It doesn't mean you did not enjoy it. And I don't think, um, uh, you know, do it, listing a laundry list of all the things you did or did not do in a game will ever uh, make me come back to it, especially getting an email. I don't think it would make me ever come back to a game. Other, you know, other games have done this in the past. MMOs do it all the time, actually, with your old account. They say, come back in. We just uh, released a new expansion pack. Your character will get this if you join up now again, some sort of like credits or something like that. Uh, so this is not too foreign. Uh, it's been going on for probably a decade or longer, but I just don't... For a single-player game, uh, it feels pretty... <laughs> it's just kind of gross. Uh, and I think if, jo- if jo- John were here, he'd say something similar. I'm liking this idea of, uh, of you know, engagement, um, but possibly in a different way. You know, if they want to open up a dialogue via email, you know, surely you can do better than this, then, you know, uh, point, point one, how about an engine that isn't so bound to a single thread? Point two... <laughs> Could you put in DLSS, please? Uh, you know, if, if they want to email us about, you know, basically ragging us on stuff, then, you know, let's let's make it a two-way conversation. You know, that's... <laughs> I, I agree with that. Could you, could you get rid of that traversal stutter we've had since Far Cry 3, please? Nope, nope, nope. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, we could probably do some uh, quite nice stats. I don't know, you know, I I kind of don't think games should be emailing you, particularly... With messages like "surely, surely, you could do better than this." I mean, I, I, I mean, what that you know? Here's the thing, right? Let's say I have played 33 hours of Far Cry Six. I'm done with it, and I'm thinking to myself, "Yeah, it was all right." Um, this doesn't actually improve matters, does it? It doesn't make me want you know 2,186 kills. Maybe I should round make it around 2,200. It's not. It's not going to happen, is it? Yeah, maybe also a little reminder that, you know, these companies do ask for, you know, whether they can use uh, certain data from our gaming, like at the start of when we first boot a game. And it's coming back full circle when we see that email just to say, 
oh yeah, they are they are using like statistics and data from our playthroughs, and here it is presented back to us. It can kind of be a bit alarming sometimes just to be reminded of that. Uh, I think that's a bit a part of it, but it's also a bit rude. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean I think the general idea of a game having meta elements, where I mean it's kind of like infected a whole lot of gaming now, like where you can access aspects of a game's meta elements on your phone and things like that, and you can you know constantly check out your gamer profile and whatnot. Those are usually seen as positive aspects of this uh, kind of like widening and flattening of like gaming. Uh, but this year, I think it's actually just generally negative, and I'd prefer not to see it, honestly. Good stuff. Well, let's move on to the next topic. At the time of recording, uh, last night, Sony put out a new state of play. It seemed to be essentially a compilation of um, non AAA games. So a bunch of indie titles, some Japanese titles. On the one hand, I am uh, actually up for a platform holder championing smaller games and games that may not be receiving um, the kind of attention that possibly they deserve. Uh, but on the flip side, I just didn't see anything in there that I was at all interested in. I thought there was some interesting... Um, uh, the Team OFK... Uh, presentation of their trailer was actually quite good, I thought. It's entertaining. Yeah. Um, but the yeah. actual um, content, again, it's just like trailer after trailer. And unless you're doing something interesting, then uh, you've got to sell that trailer on something that's looking absolutely phenomenal. And I didn't really see any of that. So kind of a bit ambivalent about that particular 20 minutes of my life, uh, Tom. Yeah, I'm just uh, going through the Eurogamer summary of what was on there. Was it Death First, Let It Die, We Are OFK, Bug Snacks, The Isle of Big Snacks. Can't miss that. Five Nights <laughs> at Freddy's Security Breach, Death's Door, Cart Rider Drift. That looked fine King enough. Of... Yeah. Yeah. King of Fighters 15 uh, for the open beta that's coming up. Uh, first Class Trouble, and then they finished on Star Ocean, The Divine Force. Yeah, that, that's... Uh, I know John has played this before. I think you, Tom, as well, too. Uh, this is a Tri-Force game, if I'm not mistaken, right there, Tom. Uh, and tri, Tri-Ace. Tri-Ace, Tri-Ace, tri, not Tri-Force. Yeah. Tri-Force is the thing from Zelda. Um, it's a Zelda <laughs> thing, yeah. <laughs> um, looking at the trailer for that game, Star Ocean, The Divine Force... I'm reminded of how Tri-Ace at one point in time around, I would think it was around 2010, 2011, 2012, they had some like really cool work in progress uh, engine research uh, back in the day, showing off how they're switching to physically based materials, uh, like uh, real-time dynamic indirect lighting and all these really cool things that you didn't really expect from games in that time period. And... Um, it seems that all just died and went away. Um, this Star Ocean... The Divine Forest trailer. Technically, it's just very uh, kind of standard in a way, and I'm. Uh, we can probably talk about some of the character design stuff here, but I felt like the, some of the characters looked a little weird in terms of their facial design. Uh, it didn't look very attractive, uh, but it's kind of keeping keeping in with the series as it's been in the past. Uh, but the one thing that I actually really liked about the trailer is that they showed it running apparently what looks to be Unreal Hardware, and running very poorly <laughs> uh, in a number of sections. And I actually kind of want to praise that just because I like seeing games in their work-in-progress state 
and we can compare them when the final game comes out and usually we'll see actually a large uh, uh, uplift there in performance. Uh, and I do like it showing off in a more rough state instead of being just always afraid to show like the most polished thing possible. So I do actually want to praise that uh, out of here. I don't know. What did you think there, Tom? I do appreciate the honesty of these trailers when they do like uh, throw out on native hardware. Um, uh, it, it wasn't, you know... Um... Uh, let's say looking as at its best, I guess. But as you say, this is a chance for you know double A uh, projects to get their time to shine and just show what's what's out there. And it is nice to see. A kind of it reminded me of a mixture of as, as Xenoblade is the obvious comparison, open world JRPG uh, stylings. Um, it's a new direction for Star Ocean for sure, which was always built as a bit more of a linear uh, sort of well, more typical JRPG uh, with. Uh, kind of turn-based battles, if you like, well, real-time, but uh, they'd be randomized to an extent. Uh, but, yeah, so this is taking to the full world, open-world formula, uh, a bit Monster Hunter-ish, with a bit of Anthem thrown in there with these kind of flying sections. I don't know, it's it's um, it's nice to see the return of this, uh, the series, uh, because it's it's got such a history, I guess. Um and it's also nice to see a title which makes a bit more sense than previous titles. I think, was it, uh, there was Faith and Faithlessness or something like that. Uh, was it Integrity and Faithlessness was the one of the previous games. So, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's come a long way. Infinite but, Undiscovery, yeah. All those silly names. Infinite Undiscovery, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's good to see it back. There's not much more to say, though. It's, it's, not, um, it's not running well, but... You know, it's early, early days for a trailer. I kind of had state of play pegged down as, you know, so, sort of like a showcase for PlayStation 5 and uh, what we should be expecting from the new generation of games. But it seems to have evolved into just a kind of general showcase. I think um, uh, First Class Trouble and um, the uh, We Are OFK game, they were actually quite interesting trailers in that it wasn't just basic gameplay thrust before you they were actually presented with um, some kind of narrative that, that made them stand out a little more uh, but beyond that i'm not sure how many of these games we would be covering on on digital foundry possibly star ocean but i don't know um but i guess that's really all we've got to say about that at the moment yeah next news topic uh intel is announcing or rather has announced uh, the latest 12th generation Intel Core architecture. Uh, the chips are coming out next week. Um, I went to a presentation earlier this week with Will um, to take a look at uh, what they're going to be announcing or what they have announced at this point. <laughs> and it's looking really good, actually. Um, we've got the Core i9-12900K. Now, um, in fact, all of the processors it's a radical shift really from Intel. They're moving away from this concept of just having um, performance cores and then stacking up the cores uh, and stacking up the prices. What they're doing is moving to a model where you do have these brand new efficiency um, cores that sit, <laughs> sit alongside the performance cores. The performance cores, there's eight of them in the 12900K, eight efficiency cores. The efficiency cores, um, are designed for low power tasks that uh, sit in the background, but they can be brought to bear for you know massively multi-core workouts. 
Um, Intel says that the efficiency cores are essentially on par in terms of IPC with the old Skylake cores, but the new performance cores are significantly more performant. They are claiming that this is uh, the greatest, um, most powerful gaming processor around. Uh, we'll talk about those claims shortly. Um, interestingly, though, they're just saying it's a big leap in um, creativity and productivity. They don't actually say it's the best of the best, possibly because Ryzen 9 5950X really is an exceptionally impressive processor. Um, so we've got the whole stack revealed there. The i5, uh, six cores, six performance cores, plus four efficiency cores uh, for under $300. Looks rather impressive. Um, I'm curious as to your impressions on this as our resident PC person, Alex. For me, it uh, it is a signaling uh, of a change in the, the what, what Intel's looking to do. We've seen uh, for them iterating on 14 nanometer for uh, what feels like the better part of a decade at this point. Um, and now we're finally seeing them shift to 10 nanometer. And what this brings in for them is not just, I would say, the improvements in the core architecture, but actually we're having a chance of them being very energy efficient, once again, in the middle of the stack. And that's why I'm actually very, I, I mean, the, the high end, the 12900K is probably gonna be interesting for the benchmarks and uh, seeing all that. But as far as I understand with the new uh, power PLK2 or whatever it's called, uh, the new PL1, kind of one, I believe. PL1, uh, sorry. Two, yeah. 241 watts. Yeah, uh, that's something the thing. Else we should probably talk about really yeah. because that is, you know, if you can configure it to 125, you can configure it to 65. And I believe they were saying that at 65 watts, the 12900K is as performant as a 10900K. Good piece. Which, which yeah, it's great. Stuff. Yeah, that that's the one that's one area I'm interested in with this because I think you know when they bring out a product like this, um, it, it always has the competition in mind. Uh, so 12900K may be running actually less efficiently just to best a 5950X in some workload or a 5900X in some workload. But actually, the most interesting thing from a consumer perspective might be. Um, okay, what about the middle of the stack? What about something really power efficient? How does that perform in price performance as well too? And that's where I think uh, the last time, I forget, wasn't, was it Rocket Lake? Uh, that's like the i5 there was also very interesting. And I think we're gonna see something this time around there again too, where the i5 is the most interesting processor. Yeah, the i5 there could be something rather special. I mean, the i5-11400F was, was uh was an exceptional processor from rocket lake which everybody seemed to hate for some reason um i think the thing the thing to bear in mind with these kind of um uh, maximum powered drawers is that um yeah if you're doing something like a video encode then you will be at max power draw but gaming typically isn't pushing the processor to its limits it might be on one core um, it might not be, you know, for the vast majority of the duration, you would expect to be GPU bound. Um, so the actual GPU power consumption is far more relevant than, than CPU at that point. But I'm really uh, uh, looking forward to these processors. Um, pricing looks pretty interesting in that the i9 is significantly cheaper than the 5950X. So I'm curious if AMD is going to be... Um, uh, reducing prices, uh, which would be which would be great because those processes are still great. Other things to uh, talk about with um, this new line is that uh, it's PCIe Gen 5. 
and um, yeah, obviously we've got DDR5 as well, which brings me on to some of the stats and um, gaming benchmarks. The gaming benchmarks Intel put out, unfortunately, use Windows 11 with the pre-patch. So Ryzen performance is, <laughs> is not indicative of what it actually is. I'm also curious as, as to see what kind of performance boost DDR5 is giving um, versus DDR4. You can use DDR4 if you've got the board for it. So I'm kind of interested to see how DDR4 fares, whether you are getting that same generational leap. I think back in the day with Skylake, when we moved to DDR4, if you had a fast DDR4 kit, as we did at the time, the processor blew previous generations out of the water. And part of that was the fact that you had much more memory bandwidth. Um, so yeah, curious to see how all the benchmarking is going to shake out for that. Will's looking at that at the moment. Um, it's a pretty difficult time for scheduling wise. I hope to do a video on this because uh, particularly with uh, this sort of high-end um, i9 and this sort of more price conscious i5, um, I, I really want to see what this what this can do. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the DDR5 there. Um, how would it apply, for example, to the integrated GPU uh, and things like that? Uh, because they're going to be pushing more for using the like heterogeneous architecture here and the GPU in it, like as part of like Intel Sync or Sync Plus or whatever they're going to call it now, um, to help out workloads. And I'm curious if that'll boost workloads in another way too that we don't necessarily expect. And I know as a part of this uh, the other day that there was slight discussions. This is not related to the new uh, 12th gen uh, CPU stuff, but there was also some um, introductions, I think, of showing off uh, Alchemist, their GPU line, on the, um, the game Rift Breaker using Intel's XDSS, as far as I know, um, which is, I think that's the first time we've seen a demo of that outside of Unreal Engine. Uh, and that game currently supports FSR. Uh, I know that, and I like seeing uh, someone immediately already supporting XCSS, and they also just announced as part of that too, like developers come to our dev portal, apply to uh, get early access to Intel XCSS today. Uh, so that's something that also just happened, and I hope it just means another blooming of these uh, reconstruction techniques and I do think games that support DLSS should honestly look into supporting XCSS as well or in lieu of if, it, if it's better for the development because I want to see an open standard and I want to see it pushed as uh, quickly as possible. Those uh, disclosures did basically validate a lot of the links about um, Alchemist. So yeah, I mean, it's all, the, it's all about the proof of the pudding at the moment, which is what is performance like? And uh, as you know, Alex, from our interview with Intel, they just aren't telling at the moment. <laughs> yeah, we, no. we, we did have that internal slide saying that it looked like uh, a 3070, which I think for a debut product would be great. But we really do need to see more XESS uh, support, I think. Um, and, and I guess we'll see what happens beyond that with how DLSS may choose to evolve. Um, let's move on. GTA Remastered has been announced. It's been talked about for some months now. Obviously, there's the big uh, black cloud covering this game in terms of uh, the publisher's legal shenanigans against mods, delisting the older versions of the game, stuff that I think is pretty abhorrent. 
but um, a trailer has been revealed and uh, kind of curious, really, the direction they've chosen with it. Tom, what do you think about this one? I think this is a classic case of adding a veneer to a game that, uh, without changing much underneath it. So I, they've gone with a very faithful uh, sort of remaster project here, which which means they've kept the core mechanics exactly the same, the geometry kind of exactly the same, and then layered over a lot of post-processing, a lot of new textures, and anything that can kind of ride over the top there, they kind of replace, which creates, I don't know if you felt the same way, uh, this mismatch between the old and the new. So on the uh, the new side, you've got a lot of, uh, you know, you've got reflections, you've got... Uh, sort of specular detail. You've got really crisp, high-resolution textures. Uh, some great effects work. Even the, um, you know, some of the models look okay. Um, but on the old, you've got the original mocap uh, sort of performances. Everything is kind of based in that framework of what was uh, kind of developed, we're looking at, what, 20 years ago? So it's uh, it's really, it's it's uncanny to see, like, this this sort of, uh, it's out of sync. You know, these two parts of the pro project appear to be out of sync with each other. But, you know, uh, I, I kind of, in a way, I hope they have like, a, we saw it with Diablo recently, a, a kind of switch back to the original style button uh, just for posterity, really. But it, it does look, uh, I mean, it's, it's great news for people who want to play the game and, and it's all in one package. Uh, but uh, yeah, very strange, especially the character designs. Like, is something really surreal about <laughs> they've kept this very impressionist uh, like caricature style where everything's a bit exaggerated, which made sense, you know, on PS2. You may as well go large on the character uh, facial features where the polygon count is certainly so high, you know, you can only push so many polygons on PS2. But when you bump that forward two, three generations, you're kind of thinking, well... I wish that was a little bit more uh, spruced up. I do think they have changed geometry. The characters are obviously more rich. They're obviously more stylized. Um, and I find it actually quite curious that what they've done is, uh, especially on the characters, is to use those original low polygon models as a kind of model for a sort of cartoon style CG aesthetic as opposed to the realism that they were probably aiming for. <laughs> back yeah. in the day that's what i was wondering <laughs> yeah like, I, I definitely agree there uh, um yeah. yeah so but it is kind of stark and um i think it's an interesting take on what you can do with low polygon models they've they've kind of uh, tried to embellish them with post-processing and, and to sort of tidy them up a bit there does seem to be some uh, new texture work in there obviously uh, but it is very much a game still of its age. I think they're talking about um, improving uh, the interface, the input system as well, which I think is uh, which I think is definitely needed. Alex, do you have any uh, additional thoughts? I uh, with remastering efforts like this, I understand um, the dilemma of trying to update a game and maintain some faithfulness to the original work itself, respect toward it, but also making it somehow different. And I'm not sure the trailer does a good job of showing that off in its, in its where it's most successful because there is a slight mismatch. I'll agree with Tom there that where you have animations and like the idea to take the original polygon count and saying that's a stylization, it's not always 
you know, that was maybe not always the original artist intent of the initial model. Uh, it was maybe just technically limited, and that's what happens. And I think sometimes throwing things like screen space reflections or uh, like new post processing, like uh, per object motion blur and uh, new blooms on top of low poly things doesn't always work out so successfully. In some parts of the trailer, I didn't think it worked so successfully. Uh, but at the same time, I, I don't know what other direction you take this in. I think the other direction they could have gone in would have been heavily leaning into a cartoon style and actually uh, remaking a lot of uh, aspects of the game to look more like the the kind of cool uh, designed cover art that we've always seen in the GTA series as a direction I think it would have been very interesting, like 13 style kind of graphics. Uh, but other than that, it is what it is. Uh, we'll cover it when it comes out. Uh, and I think the subjective quality is going to be left up to the audience there. Well, I'm just watching the trailer now. It's, it's hilarious to see uh, a stump hand suddenly turn into a hand with fingers <laughs> but the, the the hand still moves like this <laughs> but yeah what would you do it's kind of weird uh, but let's move on rumors uh, based on the <laughs> gigantic geforce now leak from uh, a while back is that uh, sackboy which is currently a ps4 slash ps5 title is uh, coming to pc um i guess we can have a quick talk about this alex but it kind of sort of suggests really that, well, you know, PlayStation is inevitably going to become a multi-platform publisher, right? Yeah, that's what it looks like here. And I think this is a good game to uh, start that up with if this does end up being true. Uh, it does seem like it is true. Uh, and uh, the reason why I think it's a good game for that is because it's, uh, once again, like Days Gone, it's using a multi-platform engine as the base. It's already cross-gen to a certain degree, so they've had to interrupt between two different systems before. They already have two, they already have low-end graphical options and high-end graphical options already there for you, uh, based on the PS4 and PlayStation 5 versions. And bring that over to PC, this is, you know, a core mascot of PlayStation, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the ecosystem, the Sackboy. Uh, and, you know, I think, PC players uh, like these kind of games. They like platformers quite a lot based upon the amount of them that are on uh, PC and PC indie games. And I, I think it's a good thing. I'm just curious though, uh, when this might come out uh, because this is a rather new title. Came out at the launch time of uh, PlayStation 5. Uh, if it is going to be announced soon enough, uh, that would mean a quicker, PC launch than we've seen to date so far, based upon Days Gone, God of War, Uncharted, and Horizon. So uh, that could maybe mean in the future an acceleration of uh, when PC games come out from uh, Sony as a publisher, which I would like to see. It's um, uh, you know a listing, and it's not the uh, sort of release of it, so there might be you know a bit of a delay between this and when it comes out. There's some uh, people up in arms in the, the comments of that thread, I noticed, uh, kind of frustrated that their exclusives are seemingly seeping over onto PC. Um, but I think it's a good thing. It's just enabling more people to enjoy the game, uh, especially in an era where, you know, if they wanted to play on PS5, for example, they would be a bit stuck right now. It's uh, still a little bit tricky to get a hold of one. It also makes me think what the what is Sony's sort of strategy going forward in terms of you know being a big one of the, the sort of pillars of uh, the console space is it really going to be the future to keep all their games on the platform for 
maybe a, a year's exclusivity and then move it over to PC. I'm thinking it would make more sense if uh, they, you know, go all the way and follow Microsoft's model and have kind of like PlayStation Plus on PC, and then the subscription is where they kind of recoup costs, and that kind of becomes its own uh, ecosystem for them uh, to play these games. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a strange situation, but yeah, it's. Uh, I'm glad it's happening because I think games, big games like God of War, Horizon, Death Stranding, they did deserve bigger audiences. On the one hand, I can see why the PlayStation audience might be sort of slightly unhappy that um, uh, PlayStation games are no longer PlayStation exclusive. But if we look at what's happened with Xbox, has going day and date with PC had any kind of detrimental effect on the console experience? I would argue no. Um, What you're getting with a console is a carefully curated uh, version of the game, plug and play, Uh, typically looks awesome and um, you're sort of plugged into the ecosystem and it's all perfectly integrated. Now with Xbox, of course, you have the cloud as well. Um, Obviously, Microsoft are going one step further with this whole Game Pass um, strategy of theirs, which is basically to say, yes, we make consoles, but this is not the only way that you can play our games. And uh, we don't mind if you play on PC. Um, I don't, as I said, I don't think it has had a detrimental effect on, um, you know, let's say, well, we've got Forza Horizon 5 coming out. looks awesome on the consoles and uh, it will look as good on PC as your PC can can run it. I don't see that as being any kind of problem as such. I think uh, there's some really good positives that actually came out of that uh, for Xbox players, um, because you look at smaller niche games like... I talked about it last time, but Killer Instinct, uh, for example, it found it's uh, a new life when it launched on PC as well, expanded the, the, the base of playable users, and that's a smaller fighting game, right? Um, and you want to always have like a large, dedicated online community, and I think that's all that, that, that something like that fostered. And in terms of Halo's case, um, it, you know, it made it so people could create forge levels and stuff like that on PC. Uh, the MCC on PC is arguably larger than it is on consoles now. Um, I think it's always been a really big positive thing in general for the Xbox side, and I only imagine it'll be positive uh, from the Sony side too. Uh, but there is the aspect I think some people could be worried about where the hardware particularities of the PlayStation 5 may be not respected in game development uh, if, if games are uh, brought out on PC as well. And I would say, just from my perspective, don't worry about that uh, because you know they're going to make the game the way it is to their design goals anyway, I think. And I think the reason why they brought on someone like Nixies is to worry about the porting effort after the fact. I think they're going to still design, even if this happens, I still think they're going to design games that utilize the PlayStation 5 hardware incredibly well uh, to the best of their abilities. And then, you know, PC hardware evolves over time. I I think there'll be definitely PCs that can run that stuff uh, now or in the future when this actually starts happening for PlayStation 5 titles. So, don't worry. I'd say that. Don't worry. I'm just going to round off with what I said last week when we were talking about God of War, which is to say that Jim Ryan had an interview with GamesIndustry.biz where he talked about his aspirations for PlayStation and he talked about getting those games out there 
to a much larger audience, right? And he was hinting heavily, I think, at towards the cloud, but to make those games available on the cloud, um, certainly within uh, the bounds of the Microsoft deal that we're pretty sure that they've got, I think they've announced that, um, it's inevitably going to involve PC ports. And if they want to have their cloud version of the game available at the same time as the PlayStation version, then it means day and date uh, PC versions, whether they actually choose to release them is another thing in, in, you know, day and date. But, you know, basically the tide is turning and it is kind of inevitable. Um, let's move on to the final topic. Nintendo's N64 emulator struggles, it says. Yes. And, uh, well, I think essentially this is the expanded offering for Nintendo Online, which opens the door to a range of emulated N64 classics where there's been... Uh, numerous complaints about technical inaccuracies in the quality of the N64 rendering. I think the, the viral image that is going around is of um, non-transparent water with dodgy reflections in Zelda. And um, talk about input lag issues. I'd be interested in your take on this, Tom. Yeah, it goes beyond that. Some people have even you know reported crashing. Uh, it seems like these are you know, uh, likely running on Nintendo's own in-house emulator. And the fact is a lot of people in the years since N64 released have developed many different emulators which do pull off far more than Nintendo have. And I think that's the crux of the point. The the, the quality of uh, fan-made software programs to run these games is significantly higher, more versatile. And if we're talking about what Nintendo brings in in terms of value with these eShop versions, it's the the netcode added to you know, games like Mario Kart. Um, but it's it's what they call perfect sync style netcode, which is a really old school style where everyone has to be frame matched before, and if they're not frame matched, then uh, the other people have to wait. Uh, say someone shenanigans and that issue. <laughs> yeah. So it's. It's it's like, okay, the one thing of value that they have added doesn't really work all that well, you know? It's, it's And it just leaves people with a sour taste in their mouths, having spent extra for this expansion uh, sort of uh, pack, basically, and it's not delivering at all. And, you know, you see some of the images uh, going around. It's, uh, you know, we, these games have been out for so long, you'd really expect the developers of the games, the original developers of these games, with source code, everything at their disposal, to be able to produce perfect versions if they wanted to. If they really wanted to, they could get away with so much more than anyone, any fan-made uh, emulator could. And yet, uh, here we are, paying more for less, basically. I think it sort of goes back to when uh, Super Mario 64 um, came out in that pack, and uh, essentially the emulation was worse than... Uh, some of the emulation that's already out there in the PC space, in the multi-format space even. That's, you know, 16 by 9, 60 frames per second. You know, there's 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 genuine issues here. Uh, I've talked about it before where I find um, reselling of games via emulation a bit 
it just it does leave but in general it leaves a sour taste in my mouth i'd like to see bespoke new versions like the uh, and you know super mario 64 d compilation project on pc if people can do that by reverse engineering code surely those with the source code <laughs> can do quite a bit better is what i'll say about that um and uh on a more like a larger level i think as consumers, I think it's really good that people are pointing out uh, visual inaccuracies and things like that because the analog from the movie industry, which is also has, you know, uh, ideas of preservation now too, is that, you know, it's would you really sell a movie again that is like missing, that drops frames, has different, <laughs> has the audio dropout or has scenes that are all of a sudden reversed colors and things like that? If they they probably wouldn't sell very well if that happened. Uh, and I don't think we should accept it in the game space as well, too. So I'm just happy to see that because it means proper preservation of games from the past does actually mean leaving them as they are in a, in a very complete visual state or improving on them in the ways that a technical medium can be improved. Frame rate, proper 16 by 9 support and things like that. Uh, so yeah, that, that's really all I have to say about that. We've got some uh, DF content discussion to talk about here. First of all, um, it's been widely requested uh, for months now. It's finally happened. You can grab DF Direct Weekly as a podcast. Go to... Um, uh, digitalfoundry.podbean.com and uh, there's a bunch of podcast uh, suppliers that you can tap into to get uh, this transmission as a podcast. Annoyingly, we're still waiting for Apple, weirdly enough, uh, which is slightly annoying. Maybe I'll have to submit it again. But uh, yes, you should be set to uh, receive this as a podcast right now. So do check that out. Uh, just that uh, URL again. Digitalfoundry.podbean. <laughs> what's going on? I can't read. Digitalfoundry.podbean.com. And uh, this is happening in combination with some changes to the DF supporter program. Um, now the uh, DF Direct Weekly is available to all supporters on Saturday. You can watch it, you can download it, uh, you can have it as a podcast. It's all pretty awesome. That typically happens on a Saturday. So look, if you're watching DF Direct now on a Monday or a Tuesday or whatever, you could have seen this days ago. Oh, you know, just we imagine how this, this would have enlivened your weekend. We should send emails to people saying, what are you doing? You could have watched this on a Saturday, Rich. <laughs> yes, surely, surely you could do you could better, better than watching it on Monday or Tuesday. And you can by joining the DF Supporter Program. So yes, all tiers now, including the four ninety nine uh, basic supporter tier get early access uh, to df direct weekly which is awesome we got some fantastic new stuff coming up for the premium tier and the retro tier magazine memories where uh, basically john and audi are talking about key moments in gaming history as viewed through the lens of the magazines that uh, were available at the time first episode of that is now live uh, df after dark which kind of sounds slightly sinister um <laughs> but is actually just an off-topic uh, podcast that we're going to be putting together that's coming soon also um we get so many questions from our supporters we can't handle all of them in df direct weekly so we're going to be uh adopting a fallback position and allowing those questions to be answered in a uh patreon only show so look forward to that let's talk about some more general discussion 
Um, we'll start with Age of Empires 4, Alex. Do you have anything to add to your review that went live uh, last week? So um, since it went live, there has been a driver update for Navi 21 uh, GPUs that I know of uh, and should greatly improve GPU performance in that game, which we already saw lacking um, on the AMD side. And I just kind of want to also generally talk about the return of real-time strategy in general. Uh, we don't cover it too often on the channel, Age of Empires 4 video, doing okay, not doing so awesome. Uh, you know, I would always like it if people did make it viral, uh, <laughs> but that's not always the case. But in general, I just want to say that I really like that uh, Microsoft is uh, putting the money behind a new Age of Empires game uh, here. I really like Age of Empires' series, and I hope that uh, in the future I get to cover more games like that and something like, for example, Total Warhammer 3, which is going to be coming out, Company of Heroes 3. Those are all super big RTS games. Just, I wish they blew up on the channel as well. <laughs> uh, that's not always the case. It's hard to gauge a, an audience. Something like Command & Conquer Remastered, that's an RTS game, and people, that video did really well. Uh, but for some reason, Age of Empires 4 is not lighting up the charts. I'm curious why that is, if it's just the, the game content itself, the series itself, the video itself. I don't know. Maybe tell me in the comments below why you think that's the case. Tom, Guardians of the Galaxy. So this is an interesting one, right? Because um, uh, we had zero expectations about the game. Um, I think in terms of expectations for Marvel franchises from Square Enix, um, I thought Avengers was actually a pretty good game, but it was kind of dressed up in... Uh, destiny trappings that we really haven't got any particular interest in. It seems to have sullied the brand almost. But uh, Guardians of the Galaxy has come along. It's getting a lot of uh, uh, positive reaction. We only received the game on launch. Um, uh, so, yeah, what do you think so far? I can understand why we only received it at launch. Uh, there, I think the, the word is kind of out that it's got a few rough edges at launch, uh, even after uh, being patched up. So, um, but we got it uh, on on launch, the same as everyone else. It's awesome. It's really, really good. I I can't believe how how high quality the story driven cinematics are and uh, the the presentation. The, there's so much to love in this game. Um, it feels like it's just a, just a few months, maybe uh, just a, a few, QA, let's say, from being an absolutely like brilliant game. Um, I'm uh, yeah having a blast with it, and it's uh, in work for our analysis. Uh, we're focusing on the next gen or current gen consoles uh, for this one, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those ones where there are two modes. There's uh, one thing I will say: there are two modes, uh, performance and quality. And you're kind of left um, wishing there was a middle option, uh, you know, between a 30 FPS option and a 60 FPS option. The 30 FPS option is 4K, the 60 FPS option is 1080p. So you're just kind of left thinking, ah, oh, I wish I could have the best of both worlds there. But so yeah, but yeah, at its core, at its core, definitely worth checking out. One of the best story-driven, narrative-driven uh, games of the year, I think. Now we're going to end the show, as always, with a Q&A session. This is where our supporters on the DF Sports Programme regularly <laughs> submit their questions for us to, uh, to consider and to answer on the weekly show. 
And the first one is from Agsma. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea whether that is actually the correct pronunciation. Agsma. You know, let's roll with it. Uh, what was the last game you bought by literally judging its cover or rather based on its presentation and personality more than anything else? Essentially, being Audi in the 90s, finding a cartridge of Bubsy on a shelf and thinking this looks interesting only to fall in love with said game, even though it's janky or indeed bad. And I would say that Bubsy is indeed bad. Um, Alex. Oh, God, this has to have happened. Last time was in the 90s. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a game on PC called Cyclones. It's a Raven software first-person shooter. I definitely bought that in the 90s uh, because the cover has a dude holding a gun. And uh, it's like really poor, uh, like a Rise of the Robots style CG. Uh, it's like a naked man on the cover too, I think. Like It's like really weird. It's just like so weird. I just thought the cover looked really cool. I have no idea why. Uh, the game is kind of okay. Um, it's a, like in between something like, uh, like your Catacomb 3D slash Doom, but without like uh, the non-planar floor stuff. So it's, it's a bit simple. Uh, there are much better Raven Software first-person shooters, but that actually has to be the last time I bought a game looking at the cover. Uh, that's usually a bad way to buy a game. You know, I've been in this business 31 years, so I, I you know, like Patrick Stewart in Extras, I've seen everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I never really have to buy games based on their cover art alone. Yeah, I agree, uh, Rich. We don't really buy on the cover art these days. Uh, but I think we at the time, in the 90s, there was so little information about games, or at least you'd get them through magazines. Uh, so did you buy a game that you that you thought looked interesting and then fell in love with it? Yeah, uh, it was uh, in the Mega Drive days. Uh, there was one particular game, I don't know if you remember this, Rich, called Balls. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't remember this. I, it, it rings a bell. It is vaguely okay. ringing a bell. All right. Uh, so... I, like the, I like the name. <laughs> no, but sure. It's it Balls it's with, spelled with, with, a, with a Z, right? That's right. <laughs> with a Z. Uh, um, z or a Z, as it should be. Yeah. Because, um, you know, the, uh, let me try and justify myself. Uh, the game was... Uh, a fighter where, uh, you know, obviously 3D was the big upcoming thing at the time and Mega Drive just couldn't pull it off. There were a lot of um, sort of workaround attempts at making 3D or uh, fake 3D on Mega Drive and this was one game where they had uh, basically a lot of uh, sprite-based balls basically making up a character and they would scale these balls uh, in kind of a way that made it look like a character was in the distance or close to the screen in a very flat textured arena. It was terrible. It was it was a terrible game. Uh, but they uh, they pulled off a 3D-ish looking game on, on the Mega Drive and I'll always remember that. And that's why I bought it because on the front cover there was just 3D characters and it looked cool. And that was all you needed back then in the 90s. So you were intrigued by balls. That's what you're saying. <laughs> Three-dimensional yes. balls, yes. Okay. okay. Yeah, I am just getting uh, sort of flashbacks to my childhood from all of this sort of innuendo. Uh, what I will say is actually at this uh, Intel um, event for uh, Intel 12th Gen Core processors, um, there was a particular presentation about overclocking where they were basically saying that Intel has got us covered in knobs, covered <laughs> with knobs rather, which I thought was uh, sort of various tittering going on at that point. 
Uh, okay, look, let's let's move on to the next question from Ang ETF. Again, Love it. No idea yeah. if that is the correct pronunciation. Ang <laughs> ETF, possibly. Hello, big fan here. Uh, I remember printing your in-depth articles to discuss them with a friend in the 2000s before the YouTube years. Wow, that's hardcore. Seems like yesterday. But who's counting when it's not frames? Um, anyway, are there are there any companies that have <laughs> blacklisted DF journalists from press events or from getting review code? Did you ever feel some friction, quote unquote, for lack of a better term with some publishers after a less than dithyrambic review? Keep up the good hashtag content. Um, have we ever been blacklisted? Well, the way this works is that you don't, you know, it's very rare that a, a PR person or a company will come out to you and say, you've been blacklisted. You just basically get blanked from there on out. And um, it's just sort of more of a sort of Cold War style vibe to it. Uh, but typically, know that, you know, obviously there's been some weird stuff that's happened in the past. Obviously, people aren't always happy with everything we've got to say about the games. Uh, this is one of the reasons now why when we do have contentious um, findings, we actually share them with publishers and developers ahead of time. First of all, so they uh, know that um, this is what we're thinking, that it's not a surprise, that we're not going to go live with a damning indictment. Um, and secondly, uh, simply because, you know, if we tell people earlier, there's a better chance. I mean, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the critiques we have are, you know, uh, technical in nature and could be easily fixed. So why not share with the developers and the publishers and aim to get it fixed and produce a collaborative rather than an adversarial relationship. Um, have you have you been blacklisted, Alex? Not that I know of. Um, I think there's been times in the past, based upon just like internal DF conversation, where we're slightly, uh, where we have maybe we've been like less than positive uh, with a certain uh, publisher's out uh, content for a while. Uh, and we're wondering about when we'll get contacted to get uh, review code. I think that's about like it, but we usually tend to get it. Um, uh, so uh, by, via chasing and, you know, going after them and sending emails or, I mean, we we also have other ways to get codes at times too. So we, we've we've you know we usually have a good time at that. I don't think we've ever been. Uh, how do you say it? Like uh, like I forget the English word for this right now. But we're like forced into a position where we can't say something about a game due to a publisher a relationship. We've never ever, to my knowledge, had that ever happen. Thankfully. Yes, uh, an interesting situation. You know, obviously there is going to be some friction with publishers and developers because not everything is amazing. But, you know, on the flip side, it's actually quite rare these days to actually find a bad game. There's games that we don't like. And typically when there is a game that we don't like, we, if we're not interested in it, we're not particularly um, compelled to cover it. Um, that does mean that some titles do get overlooked and we're currently in a process of going back and looking at the more interesting ones. Um, but yeah, this this kind of idea of an adversarial relationship that ends up in being blacklisted, um, it's, it's not a great state of affairs. Um, 
we were sort of a lot more, I wouldn't say aggressive, but um, there were situations, I guess, in the PS360 era where, you know, you, I could roll up at a press conference and it was pretty obvious that people were somewhat guarded about what they would share with us. Um, and again, that's kind of uncomfortable and uh, it's kind of a thing of the past now because we have sort of um, moved to the idea that we actually want to help make games better. Do you, do you have anything to add to this, Tom? Yeah, there, there used to be uh, that case where, but these days I just feel like we talk to publishers and developers a little bit more closely and uh, it's it's more more satisfying just to get the information right and uh, get it across if there's something wrong with the game, say, early. So the, there's rarely a case where we um, a relationship with a publisher uh, deteriorates in any way because of the fact that uh, there's uh, you know negative reporting on a game if there's something sort of negative to say it's usually technical in nature and if that's the case then it's hard to you know argue against unless there's a day one patch coming for the game in which case yeah there's, there's something we can we can do or say but uh, yeah it's usually pretty clear-cut uh, what we're about and you know. Yeah, I mean, there's also, I think, something to address, which is the the kind of fan perception of our work versus the professional relationships that we have with the likes of Microsoft and Sony. So, for, for example, I remember back in the day when we were talking about, uh, we had the global exclusive on Xbox One X, uh, the specs for that. And uh, people couldn't believe that Microsoft would talk to us about Xbox One X because apparently we hadn't been kind to Xbox One in platform comparisons, right? Um there's two ways to look at that. Number one, um, Microsoft was so confident in the pro in the product that they believed that it would stand up to a DF um, take on on the hardware. And I think you know, historically, if you look back at what Xbox One X achieved, um, they were entirely justified with that. The, the console was terrific. And um, and secondly, you know. There's no malice behind anything that we say about a particular game. If we don't like it, we don't like it. It's not that we've got any kind of agenda against the publishers or whatnot. And they understand that, right? Sony, Microsoft, uh, Nintendo, everybody works with us because, you know, we we actually typically really enjoy all of the stuff that they do and like to, to discuss it. So that's another perspective on this, which is that um, the kind of perception of, of what publishers think about us is kind of quite different to what fanboys may think it is um but let's move on next question bjork tribe one for you here tom i believe do you think diablo 2 will get a 4k 60 mode for home consoles i understand there is a lot of post-processing and real-time lighting going on but i have to think that xbox series x and ps5 can handle it what do you reckon i would agree yeah i would have said anyway you know looking on the surface of it uh you remember diablo 3 on a PS4 and Xbox One uh, Pro and One X, in fact, had 4K dynamic setups, and they all ran at 60 anyway. So, yeah, I, I just feel like it's uh, the the standard has been set with that game. Though obviously, that you know, Diablo 3 didn't have a legacy mode and legacy code running behind it, which is the only snag I can think of with you know this Diablo 2 resurrected. Uh, um, remake where a remaster is uh, going to fall short and uh, have a bit more complexity to it. But otherwise, I think it's, I would hope it's doable. If not, you know, uh, so we've got 1440p60 on Series X and PS5 for 
was essentially a remastered game from 20 years ago. It's it must be possible uh, to at least go for 4K and make it DRS enabled. The 60 FPS mode is isn't it 1080p to 1440p dynamic? Yeah, I think that's it. That is it. Yeah. Obviously, it's there for a reason. So I'm curious as to why it's not 4K 60, and maybe it is just the scope of the project or the engine they were using. I don't know, but it's uh, kind of weird, right? Yeah, I always feel that there's some sort of, like, why choose 1440p as the upper bound for a DRS scale? I'm always curious why that, and not why not just let it opportunely scale up to something like 4K if it can, in, in those rare moments, maybe, uh, just to always, in, you know, increase the amount of uh, visual uh, fidelity you can at any one moment. So. I actually don't know why they chose 1440p as the top-end resolution. Maybe it wouldn't be there all the time, of course, uh, at 4K, but I would always like to see a higher top res that could be possible. I don't think it affected the game too much um, overall, but yeah, it would have been nice. And it's uh, I, I, obviously we didn't play much into the you know Diablo is a huge game. You know you can do a lot with your character. You can bring in other players. So I don't know how wild. Uh, combat can get later on uh, probably deserved 1440p when you get to latest uh, levels but yeah from what I saw it probably probably could have run a bit higher but uh, next question I actually missed this one out from earlier in our list uh, from Brian Seals and it's another one for you Tom I reckon greetings DF dot 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 I'm very curious about the practicality of counting pixels by eye when the resolution drops doesn't the internal TV or monitor upscaler kick in to adjust the image to the screen? Yes, it does. How does an eye count <laughs> actually work reliably? Um, so this is all about rendered pixels versus di display pixels, right, Tom? Yeah, and it's the scaling is usually done by the console itself uh, these days. But you know, your mileage may vary depending on how you set your uh, your console up. But generally speaking, 4K TV, 4K output from your console of choice and your console uh, and the game may be natively rendering at whatever resolution it's rendering at. And we've been doing this for quite a while and it's gotten a little easier in some ways and harder in others. But yeah, you can figure out what the resolution is by, uh, it's a simple um, calculation you make based on the number of pixels you can see to the ratio against how many, um, actual pixels there are, how many edges you see in the native uh, sort of rendering of the game versus how many pixels there are uh, actually being pushed out by the console. And you can kind of, you can extrapolate from that using samples and a sort of small ruler. So many years ago, we did actually do a video on how to pixel count and uh, I'll Classic. put a link in the video description below. So Classic video. <laughs> um, uh, please uh, don't. <laughs> Classic but, you video. Know, basically, it, um, it shows you the, uh, the basics. Now, the basics have uh, evolved somewhat in the era of temporal anti-aliasing, which basically makes finding those edges where you do the, the ratio calculations a lot more difficult to the point where some titles it's actually almost impossible. Um, and it's a system that we kind of want to get rid of if we can, because it takes up a lot of time. But essentially, yes, the scaler or rather the code in the game will upscale the, uh, the sub-native resolution. It's all about finding those harsh edges, which enable you to uh, see how many native pixels are being rendered 
versus the display pixels. And that's how you get the calculations. Typically, you use log, horizontal, and vertical edges. Do you, do you have anything to add to this, Alex? I guess uh, the one thing that sounds like a slight misapprehension in the question, doesn't the internal monitor upscaler kick in to adjust the image of the screen? No, it doesn't. Yeah, I guess that's it. It's just like the game is actually outputting uh, a resolution, uh, and it is doing all the upscaling. It's all in that game, usually, unless the game is outputting something like internally 1440p for some reason, and then the console is upscaling it to whatever your chosen resolution is. So that's the one thing that I would say there. And also, uh, the idea that the upscaling somehow obfuscates uh, the real resolution, it really doesn't. It just makes it slightly blurrier. Uh, it just makes it like slightly less exact looking, but you can still see those exact same edges. Next question from uh, Neon5. Uh, are there any plans to test NVIDIA's claims about low latency cloud gaming, supposedly beating Series X at 60 FPS with 2080 rig at 60 FPS? As this one can be tested now before the 3080 tier is rolled out, considering that tier also requires six months of deposit, if yes, should we expect to support a collaboration for this, as there's a chance you guys may not get 15 millisecond latency to the GFN data center due to the state of the internet there. So a few sort of layers to this question. Uh, first of all, um, just to put it all into context, NVIDIA has announced an expansion to the GeForce Now um, uh, service, the cloud streaming service, which opens the door to what they're calling the super pod, which is uh, essentially um, a Threadripper um, based cloud server PC. 28 gigs of RAM, interesting choice there, a PCIe Gen 4 storage, and a GA102 uh, Enterprise class GPU, which is equivalent to an RTX 3080 in performance terms. And I think the thing that's being discussed here is a really interesting slide that NVIDIA put out where they use their latency analysis tool LCAT. Uh, is it LDAT? LDAT, that's it. LDAT which um, basically is a really accurate way of measuring button click to pixel uh, response on screen. And uh, this slide essentially suggests that um, their system, their cloud system is considerably, uh, has considerably less latency than a local Xbox uh, running Destiny 2, I think. Um, Alex, this, I, I, I think there's some caveats to this, which is that Destiny 2, which is the game that was being tested, is an NVIDIA Reflex title, if I'm Yeah, it correct. is. So, so it's got a built-in latency advantage. Um, the extent and, uh, and the extent of that advantage is considerable, but I'm not sure whether it can overcome, say, I don't know, 50 milliseconds of end-to-end -end cloud lag. So what do you make of these claims? I guess there's maybe... <sighs> A claim to that if, uh, well, like if the game was running at 120 FPS or something on the PC, maybe um, I would see that as being something uh, that is true. And there's been cases in the past, Tom talked about it once before when he was also with us here on DF Direct, where the PC versions sometimes have a surprisingly lower input latency than their console equivalents. And 
we, we, there's one reason why this can happen sometimes that we saw once uh, in the port to, of The Last of Us uh, Part two, uh, No, The Last of Us 1 to PlayStation 4, where in that game they purposefully introduced a, a frame or so of latency to increase the render's multi-threadedness. Um, I know that is correct. So there can be some times where to make something run better on a machine, you add a bit more latency in it. Um, so that's where I could say maybe for some games where this is a, an issue on the console version, this could be possible. But it's hard to really imagine that, <laughs> that streaming something to your PC could have a lower input latency in most games in most games. I think that is the key, isn't it? Most games, uh, they put, should put an asterisk against that uh, claim and just uh, suggest only reflex-supported titles. Um, we've got, you know, Destiny 2, uh, Apex Legends supports it, uh, but it's, it is a limited scope. And that is, that's uh, only through that is that uh, is it really possible. There are some games which have uh, exceptional outside of that Realm. So I think we talked about it before, Alex. Uh, Guilty Gear Strive was reported to, to have lower latency on the PC version than the console versions. But this is NVIDIA's own uh, technology helping to reduce render side latency uh, in order to compensate, let's say, for the network latency that will be added later on. You know, 15 uh, milliseconds, is it? I, I think that's uh, well. That's the latency to the data center, but there's going to be yeah. latency on input. There's going to be latency on uh, decode and encode. Yes. Uh, yeah. Probably, yeah. Um, uh, cumulative there. I do think it's worth testing, and um, in terms of supporter collaboration, possibly. But um, typically, with these things, we aim to get access to a super high-end connection to show these services running at their absolute best. So that's that's the plan there, at least. Uh, let's move on to the next question from Jonathan Hayhurst. Do you do you foresee consoles slash PCs going beyond 120 hertz in the foreseeable future? PC is constantly pushing higher and higher frame rates, but TV and console manufacturers seem to move slowly in comparison. Will we see increments of 60 FPS, 180 to 40? Or could we see other unusual refresh rates like on PC, Alex? Uh, I think we're going to be at 120 for a while because uh, uh, just the, the manufacturing, the use of that in the consumer space, TVs are different than monitors. And uh, there's just a... The consoles can only do so much. And are you... Is your best bang for your buck is to hit those things you can do reliably. And 120 hertz is at the edge of that reliability thing. I think that's like the top end of what we could see in the next decade. Uh, so I do not think we're going to see anything higher than that other than boutique products where there's been, you know, there's been like super high refresh rate uh, things like, um, what do you call those things? Projectors and things like that for a long time. Uh, but those are things that are designed for more than this console play. Uh, and they're more specialized and custom. So I don't think so. I do not think so. This is like a mainstream technology um, with you know, consoles and PC, uh, sorry, consoles and TVs. And PCs, it's you're more, more moving out into the niche, right? And uh, esports uh, is typically where you really get the benefit from something higher than 120 hertz. But it's difficult to actually see an esports scenario playing out in the average living room. 
So I think that's probably why um, 120 hertz is a, is a good limit. There's also um, the concept of limited uh, and diminishing returns as you scale any higher. So, you know, for example, 120 hertz is 8.3 milliseconds. And then obviously 240 hertz would be, you know, half of that four milliseconds. But, you know, again, especially in a living room environment, especially if you're using a controller, which is actually a, a very imprecise form of input, the concept of um, those super low frame times actually, um, actually being perceivable and having a benefit with such an imprecise input method, I don't really see uh, any need for it. I think 120 is a is a good place to to stop there. The whole pipeline would have to be replaced from console power to HDMI standards to you know TV tech. It's just it's it's not going to happen anytime soon. And uh, I kind of think we need to maximize what we're doing with 120 hertz in the console space before we do anything else. It's a bit like 8K in that respect. It's like I don't I don't need it. Okay, next question. Uh, Brian McIntosh, since Crisis 3 now runs on Ampere hardware, I tested it out once, uh, once I finally got an RTX 3060 Ti. Is one of the team tempted to spend a day running it on a selection of Ampere and Navi 2 GPUs to see how they stack up in a title they were likely not optimized for? Um, I still have issues um, with Crisis 3, the original version, on Ampere hardware. Um, I noted that when I did the console comparisons, but uh, for for Crisis Three, but weirdly, you didn't have any issues at all, right, Alex? No, I had none at all, and I don't know what's causing it. I think there was a fix that people mentioned online that had to do with perhaps running the game with fast sync. Yeah, but it but doesn't that help. Doesn't for help us. That doesn't help us. So uh, I don't know. It's weird that I don't get it, though. Um, here's the thing. Will doesn't get it either, uh, because it still, or at least up until recently, was in our CPU benchmarking suite, where it continues to actually perform like a champion. But I basically get um, really bad frame drops, uh, frame rate cap to 65 FPS. Uh, yeah, 65 <laughs> frames per second. And uh, back in the day, we had issues with Rise as well. Mm -hmm. uh, do you remember that, Alex? Yeah, I do. And yeah, I honestly so don't know what's going on there, why your PC doesn't want to keep up with the times, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, Crisis 3 Remastered uh, could, that works could well. slot in because that doesn't seem to have the issue. Um, yeah. Not really too much more to add to that. Uh, next question. Um, trans tech girl, Tom, what shampoo do you use? It's the burning issue. It, asking all the hard-hitting questions here. Well, conveniently, I did bring it here, having looked at the questions. Uh, so we've got the Shea Moisture Coconut and Hibiscus Curl and Shine Shampoo. Hibiscus. Okay. If you were, you know, available at all... <laughs> salons near you if you so desire well that's it yeah pretty much you seem to have a pretty good grooming regimen going on there do you have a shampoo recommendation for the audience I just tend to actually always grab that which is of a reasonable price and uh, smells good enough to me I don't I try to try to avoid a lot of that like uh, overly uh, weirdly branded products that have like like gun grips on them for like men and things like that. I tend to avoid. I tend to avoid that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's more just neutral, 
you know, uh, nothing too aggressive. That's about it. But Rich, there's a very important question here for there you. There is a very important there is question from, from Adi um, Sorley. Yeah, Rich, what shampoo do you use? Um, well, whatever's available, really. It's not really a uh, you know the concept of uh, shampoo choice in my predicament isn't particularly a particularly sort of pressing issue. Just grab whatever's available. It's whatever's there. <laughs> so that's that's kind of about it, really. I mean, what a bizarre way to end the show. But, you know, there are, where there do we are, go from um, here? Well, I'll tell you where we go from here, Tom. Which is that uh, you know, with that remarkable main, there could well be some um, DF sponsorship opportunities from a particular brand. Same with you there, Alex, with your. Uh, with your, with your lustrous mane. I'm curious with uh, such uh, longer hair these days, Tom, uh, do you get haircuts often to trim that up or do you uh, just kind of let it flow, let it go? Uh, it was a COVID, uh, it was a lockdown locks as they call it. So they just, just, when I turned up at the hairdressers like many months on, uh, maybe a year later, they were like, oh my God, we're gonna have to shear that down. So this is cut, this is definitely cut, <laughs> but I'm keeping it for the time being. Well, you know, what can I say? You have actually, Shield shampoo product on DF Direct Weekly. Though. I know. How so dare maybe you. this should be a, uh, an offshoot maybe, for DF. Hopefully, well, hopefully you'll get a case through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but let's just say I severely doubt it. <laughs> okay, well, look, let's wrap this up. Uh, please do like, subscribe, slash, share if you enjoyed the content. Ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications whenever new DF content arrives on the channel. A DF supporter program, get involved. Uh, join our Discord, chat to the team. Um, some amazing stuff happening there. Early access on the DF Supporter Program. Retro tier, tons of new retro content. Tons of exclusive content. Be there or don't be there. Um, but that's all from us for now. Thanks for watching. Surely you can do better than this.